welcome back to Sounds Jewish. After our long summer break, let me be the first to wish you a happy new year. It may be only September, but the Jewish New Year is upon us, followed swiftly by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, then Sukkot, Simchat Torah. Who can keep up? I'm Jason Solomons, and in this month's Sounds Jewish, one man with plenty to atone for is Bernard Madoff, now beginning his prison sentence of 150 years. We ask why the mastermind behind the biggest fraud case in history deliberately set out to embezzle his fellow Jews. He was going to bar mitzvahs and seders and bat mitzvahs and weddings and people would sit there and he'd chat to them and all the while he was stealing all their money. It'll take more than a simple apology for Bernie Madoff to redeem himself but as Yom Kippur approaches we look at the power of confession. What do you feel you should say sorry for this year? Uh, I suppose one thing I'd like to say sorry for is um, gossiping, really. Oh, she's terrible, that woman. We had her on the show last week. Anyway, I'll tell you later. And with his world tour heading to Tel Aviv this month, we ask whether Leonard Cohen is the world's most Jewish musician. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Joining me in the studio this month are BBC broadcaster and Guardian columnist Mark Lawson and the violinist and composer Sophie Solomon. Mark, good to have you here. Nice to see you. Normally we're in the Radio 4 uh, studios when we meet for Front Row. Front Row, sorry. But hopefully we are, we can, yes. Hopefully we can, we can bring that, uh, that debate, vigorous debate here to Sounds Jewish. Uh, now, you've written before, and I read this with quite a bit of interest, I meant to bring it up with you, that you're often assumed to be Jewish by some of your more irate uh, correspondents. Uh, it, coming on on this show is not going to help that, is it? Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, it's not something I would um, uh, want to avoid people thinking. Um, I always wanted to be Jewish. You see, I grew up, and I'm a Roman Catholic, and um, I grew up reading the books of Philip Roth and um, others from Saul Bellow from the age of about 11, 12, and um, I always quite wanted to be Jewish, and I never thought it would happen, but then when I came into the media world, um, because some people assume me to be connected to Nigella Lawson and uh, Dominic Lawson and Nigel, um, uh, they assumed that I was. It goes in various ways. Taxi drivers mainly. Um, in the 80s, I used to be berated by taxi drivers who blamed me for monetarism and would have <laughs> messages for my dad. And then after that, I mean, and more, more recently, it's they want Nigella's phone number, which I don't have. So they're, they're very disappointed have you when ever I reveal. Eaten, do you cook her stuff? Um, I, we do. We have the books, yeah, and we you use see. them. Mark Lawson, thank you very much. Lovely to see you. Uh, Sophie Solomon, you're working on a new soundtrack for a play at the National Theatre called Our Class. Now, it's by a Polish playwright... Uh, whose name I'm going to try and pronounce, Tadeusz Slobodzianek. That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, but it's not a Jewish play, is it? It's a, well, it's a Polish play um, looking at a story of po- really Polish and Jewish history, which is about the massacre at Yadavna, which is a village in northern Poland um, in 1941, which has been a sort of aspect of Polish history that, that obviously has been quite tricky for, for Poles to come to terms with. And so it's kind of interesting that now there's a Polish playwright who's kind of facing that and, and writing about it. Is that controversial for him to be I going over I think it is now? pretty... I mean, obviously, I haven't been to Poland recently. I'm not entirely sure what the what the vibe is there, but, but I believe that it's pretty controversial in Poland. I think that, you know, it's pretty split in Poland, people who are able to really face that part of, of their history. And a lot of young people, young Poles, particularly in northern in that part of northern Poland, who are really interested in playing klezmer music and actually connecting with let's face it, a part of their culture that was just wiped out. And even for the Poles, it was, you know, it was a huge part of their culture. And um, But then there's other, you know, I think there's plenty of Poles who'd actually rather kind of forget what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sophie Solomon, lovely to see you too. He was nicknamed Uncle Bernie, but a cuddly, philanthropic man he definitely turned out not to be. 
Much has been written about Bernard Madoff and the complex Ponzi scheme, but less known is the fact that he deliberately targeted his fellow Jews. He embezzled them, along with dozens of Jewish charities on both sides of the Atlantic, to the tune of millions, if not billions, of dollars. Journalist Adam Labor set out to investigate just that, and it's the subject of his latest book, The Believers, How America Fell for Bernard Madoff's $65 billion investment scam, due out next month. Sounds Jewish producer Sarah Peters caught up with Adam Labor and began by asking him how exactly Madoff aimed his fire on the wealthy Jews of New York. I think he, uh, he targeted the wealthy Jewish elite specifically on the Upper East Side through institutions such as Yeshiva University and through the Ramaz Orthodox Day School uh, because it was a very close-knit world and it was one in which he was accepted because he was Jewish himself. And um, one of his ways into that world was a man called Ezra Merkin, whose father, Herman Merkin, helped found the Fifth Avenue Synagogue, which is one of the most um, important synagogues in, in America and has an extremely influential and very wealthy congregation, several of whose members invested with Bernie Madoff. For example, Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate who was a survivor of Auschwitz and is probably the most famous Holocaust educator in the world, had a charitable trust and he invested his own money with him and he invested quite a lot of the charitable trust money with him as well. And I suppose in that fairly small society it was a, was a kind of word of mouth thing and everyone wanted to be part of that. Yeah, and Madoff's, uh, everyone wanted to be part of it certainly and Madoff's clever trick was that he pretended he was closed all the time. He wasn't like most Ponzi schemes, most pyramid schemes where they're touting for business. He turned people away, which of course made only people only even more crazy to get in and give him their money. And then he turned them away once, he turned them away twice. In fact, it reminded me slightly of the procedure if someone wants to convert to Orthodox Judaism. They turn you away. They keep turning you away to check that you really want it. And then eventually they let you in. Um, and it was a bit similar with Bernie Madoff. You know, he would, if you or I or someone just went up to him and said, I want to invest with you, he would say, clear off, I've never heard of you. No, go away. So you had to go through connections. And when you eventually accepted, you felt like you were on the inside. I mean, I think there's quite a lot of religious parallels with him. I think he, in a way, he ran a cult. And, you know, the cult had its godlike figure at the head of it, who was Bernie Madoff. And the cult had its own secret belief system, which was his very obscure investment strategy, which no one really understood. But people kind of pretended to understand because they thought it gave them the inside knowledge. And then, like all cults, if you asked too many questions, you would be thrown out of the cult and into the wilderness would you say there was another reason for cultivating with his Jewish clients? In your book, you discuss it as a possible act of revenge against the, the Jewish elite. Can you explain that further? Yes, I, I think um, one of the things about American Jewry is that for people of Madoff's generation in their 70s, whose ancestors came from Eastern Europe, there's still a lot of resentment among them against the Jewish establishment and the very sort of lukewarm or even hostile reception it gave them when they came over 100 years ago. So one of the themes I explore in my book is what's called the Starkers against the Yekers. The Starkers being the kind of the, the tough Jews from Eastern Europe who came from the small remote villages without you know, you know, running water or electricity or anything like that, had to fight very hard to make their way in America. And the Yekers being the kind of establishment German-Jewish families, such as the Lehman Brothers or the Vorbergs or the Siefs, who were very well established, who were very Germanic and very bourgeois, and were quite nervous, even scared, of this mass wave of Jews coming in from Eastern Europe. I think one of the things that that's really illustrates how he prayed within the community 
is a scene from one of the books where Yeshiva University, on whose board he sat, is uh, looking for a new dean for its business school, and he's chairman of the search committee. And the search committee is not meeting at the university, which would be normal. No, the search committee is meeting at the office of Bernard Madoff, you know, sitting around his big table in his boardroom, and all the intellectuals and all the academics are kind of quite cowed by this figure because they're teaching it and he's doing it and he's a very respected figure on Nasdaq and a respected figure in the community and dominates the proceedings and is very also very courteous and friendly and everything and just but just completely dominates the whole affair and two floors down none of these people realize that He's running a Ponzi scheme, which is stealing the university's money. The sense of betrayal they must feel. These were people who'd known each other for, for more than 40 years. How did they actually uh, try and explain what had happened? Um, well, they just people feel completely betrayed, that's for sure. And uh, that's the, the personal aspect of this is one of the hardest things to understand. This how Madoff could do this to people. I mean, he was going to bar mitzvahs and seders and bat mitzvahs and all these kind of Jewish events and, and weddings and people would sit there and he'd chat to them, and all the while he was stealing all their money. It's really quite extraordinary. Because, I, I mean, he was basically a sociopath. You know, he had no human feelings for his victims. Adam Labor talking to Sounds Jewish producer Sarah Peters about the Madoff scan. Mark Lawson, do you think people outside the Jewish community perceive Madoff as a Jewish villain? I mean, plenty of Jews that I know have been cringing and fearing that that's exactly how it plays out. Um, there is always that risk, um, clearly. I think it's not... Of interest read the book, it's not that surprising. I mean, most sales um, is in some way uh, racially targeted, um, I think, or at least um, personality targeted. When I take my sons into game and those computer shops, um, it works so well because they are young, nerdy teenagers, in effect, who are selling the games to them. If you and I were behind the counter, then I think probably the profits would go down quite fast. And um, I think it's very common. Um, there's a film, Free Fall, on TV recently by um, Dominic uh, Savage, yes. which was about the um, selling of subprime mortgages in Britain. Now, that was exactly the same in that the super salesman, it was very clearly shown, um, targeted people who are exactly like him. He'd actually been to school with one of them, and his whole pitch was, you know, people like us, I mean, he was a, a, a cockney wide boy, was people like us, we should have these houses, we should have these houses, and that's what they go for. And I saw, you know, there's an episode of Watchdog um, uh, last year when, again, it was an Asian salesman who had targeted Asian families. And I think that, unfortunately, is how it very often works, that we want, we like the idea that the person selling us to us is someone like us with the same values. And I think probably this was an extreme version of that. Uh, but Sophie Solomon, the, the Madoff it has this Dickensian name, doesn't one book about him is called, uh, not very well, punningly, uh, Made Off With The Money. Uh, so as a story, there is a sort of this compelling figure at the start. I mean, I can see Made Off The Musical. You can hear the, oh, hear the fiddles on, on the ice. roof. <laughs> <laughs> on ice, if you like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there is the, the sort of like the Shylock effect of, of, you know, of a character like this. But at the same time, you know, I think, as Mark says, there's, uh, there's nothing particularly Jewish about it. You know, you can have villains of every, of every colour and creed. Um, what's kind of interesting to me is that the idea that actually, you know, you have the Jew as a victim of something like this because, you know, that isn't something that we see so much. And, you know, speaking from my own experience, I know my father, you know, if someone calls from the Jewish community and asks you to give money, you feel obliged to. It's just that's so embedded in the culture and, and you'd feel very strange sort of saying no. It would be a very uncomfortable feeling and that comes back to that sort of guilt, I think. You know, there is this sense of kind of, of an obligation. What's kind of, what's 
also quite interesting to me, on an aside, but is the whole thing, you know, of Madoff, Madoff coming out of this sort of Lower East Side kind of gangster culture. Yeah. And um, the idea that, that actually a, a Jew might have sort of gone for, you know, done the murder incorporated thing, done the gangster thing, but really only often for one generation and then would say, actually, but yeah, I kind of want my, my kids are going to be doctors and my kids mm. are going to be lawyers. So, you know, this idea that maybe they do something like that, but only as a route to getting somewhere else. Because it made off got his kids to do exactly well, what yeah. he was doing. Well, well they could the, shop him in in the end. The name is an astonishing thing. I mean, this is a trivial aspect of it, but, I mean, you do keep thinking there is some kind of god of headline writers somewhere because <laughs> the fastest runner there's, there's ever been is called Bolt. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, and uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the young South African runner who is having her gender question has the men in her surname, and you just wonder if somewhere <laughs> there is someone who is somehow serving newspaper headline writers. <laughs> there is a justice, I think. Mark, when I, I mentioned to you that the outside of the Jewish community, they, the Jews, certainly inside it, fear that people are going, oh, look, you know, mm. one of theirs doing it to one of them. If, if there was a, a Roman Catholic fraud of, of, of such kind of uh, sort of um, immensity, which I suppose there has been with Vatican yeah. uh, funds, do, do you feel a sort of sort of tinge of, oh, I wish it didn't belong to that lot? Um, well, it's different in Roman Catholicism because it's to do... I mean, all faiths, I think, have equivalent problems. I don't think with Madoff... Um, I mean, there are many, many cases where you flinch now, I flinch um, from the outside at what is clear anti-Semitism to me in the media. I didn't feel it on that one, actually. I, I don't think that was the reaction. Um, it, it did remind me that, you know, back in the 80s, I remember sort of Michael Milken and Ivan Bursky, they were sort of the faces of that financial crisis. And then we had the Guinness affair here in London where, you know, all the, all the main protagonists were, you know, shh, Jewish. That but also, one. if you look at other ones, you know, the um, the world banks that went down recently. I mean, there are Scottish Presbyterians in hiding um, in their country homes, um, uh, <laughs> surrounded by on them. surrounded by security. So um, I don't think. So I think actually that stereotype, uh, thankfully, is difficult because I think it's um, it's so clearly more complicated than that. Uh, I think the interesting part as well of the Madoff is the family involvement, which is a very sort of Jewish mm. kind of construct as well mm. to get them to get them all involved. And I suppose the the the, the blissful irony is that the, the sons had to turn him in, which I, in, in in Jewish terms, you know, mm. to just around a Friday night table. That that's going to be a tricky one. It's going to be the hardest thing <laughs> over Chop Liver. Um, anyway, Happy New Year to Bernie Madoff wherever you are. You don't know me from the wind. You never will. You never did. I'm That's the unmistakable sound of Leonard Cohen still on a universally acclaimed world tour. Deep into his 70s, the singer-songwriter is considered at the height of his powers and currently at the centre of a great controversy, with a date in Tel Aviv coming up this month. Those who wanted him to stay away from Israel argued that Israel's recent conduct was at odds with the Buddhism Cohen so admires. But their opponents then said that that was to misunderstand Cohen. Whatever his interest in Buddhist teachings, Cohen remains intensely Jewish. Plenty of rabbis have even been known to build entire sermons around Leonard Cohen's songs, and many of his poems turn up in prayer books. Two of the most qualified people to talk about Leonard Cohen are with me in the Sounds Jewish studio. Sophie, you actually played live with him, didn't you? I, well, yeah, I went and played. actually played in the studio with him in, um, in L.A., um, thanks to Rufus Wainwright, actually, who's a kind of mutual... He did a wonderful so. cover of Hallelujah as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent a gorgeous afternoon, probably one of my favourite afternoons of my life, um, in a studio with Leonard in LA, playing his songs, and uh, then he made me Buddhist bean soup, um, which was delicious. <laughs> really? Yes. Is it nicer awesome. than Jewish bean soup? Um, I don't, well, yeah, it was pretty special. I think maybe, he, maybe a combination of the two, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what, so what songs did you play on? How many tracks? Um, we, play, we, just, we, will play, we played through all, uh, all his material, really, actually. It was, kind of, it was just really lovely, yeah. It was a really 
beautiful afternoon. And it, um, so you had to play for him his yeah, songs. Yeah, we played back together to or his songs together. Yeah, with yeah, it was really. Did you really did you did you sweat anxiously did, about know, how to interpret these? Films? Um, not so much because his music. It's funny. I mean, to get straight into the nitty gritty of it, his music has this kind of amazing quality where you feel like you know it already, and so to play it. Um, it's, it has a simplicity that is very, for me, particularly as someone who plays Jewish music, it feels very sort of internal. So I immediately kind of felt that I knew what to play. Um, so it was very, no, it was very, felt very, I had a great affinity with it. And um, Did you discuss the, the Jewish side of the music? Is that why he got you in, because um, of your affinity for the Jewish side? I think that he, he uh, not specifically, but I think that he, he loves Jewish Gypsy, Russian, all those kind of Eastern European sounds, and so I think that was why he was recommended. Me what what song in particular might we know that you lent that kind of increased that sound? Well, I mean, Gypsy Wife is an obvious one, obviously, because that has the very sort of Gypsy fiddle flavour, and also Dance Me to the End of Love. Dance me to the end of love. Which for me is kind of one that really brings home this kind of almost Hasidic thing that he does, which is these very simple refrains, you know, no wordless, and just repeated and repeated as a kind of route to some kind of elevated state. Mark, you were one of only a few journalists recently uh, oh. accorded an interview with him for uh, Radio Force Front Row, of course. It must have been uh, fascinating kind of going to meet him. I know you do it to, to everyone, but there are always some, I think, who one trembles before more than others. He was astonishingly impressive. I think on the religious thing, he is this bizarre cultural buffet. You see, this is the odd thing, that um, I grew up as a Catholic, um, and I know I have lots of uh, Jewish friends who say, as you just say, you know, he's the most Jewish um, musician there's ever been. I couldn't believe how Catholic they were. And I remember thinking how subversive this line was in one of the songs um, about a sex scene. She clung to me like a crucifix. I mean, it was kind of kind of thing James Joyce got thrown out of the Catholic Church <laughs> yes, for. That kind of thing. There are references to Our Lady of the Harbour, to um, the bleeding heart, the sacred bleeding heart of Jesus, which is a thing you know from, and it's all there. Uh, if you go to a Catholic church, I mean, that's the iconography of it. And I asked him about this, and he said that, um, which I suppose makes perfect sense when you think about it, he grew up in Catholic Montreal. Um, he had Catholic nannies because they were quite a well-heeled family, and so he was exposed to all that. But he also said, because similarly, there's a reference to the night when you plan to go clear which is a reference to Scientology um, but he said that one of his friends had said that uh, Leonard Cohen had never met a religion that he didn't like and I think that does come out although he also I should make clear particularly in this context um, he was very offended by people who thought that in any way he'd given up Judaism and mm. he said that he was absolutely um, he was Jewish that was his identity his children were Jewish and um, he was appalled that anyone thought otherwise yeah no I think we would be uh, the, the Jews would be <laughs> as well you know we, we got we got to have some we got to claim some <laughs> I mean, it's, his grandfather was a rabbi, you know, an mm. orthodox rabbi as well. So that that clearly must have that seeps in, and that doesn't that doesn't go. I mean, you, when your grandfather, my grandfather was wasn't a rabbi at all, but he, you know, I can still hear him singing the uh, the, the Shabbat evening blessings and, and, and Passover celebrations. Oh well, no, you see, I wanted to ask you about that because the most for me, I um, I saw the concert three times in different places on the tour, starting off in Dublin, and. Um, 
the most extraordinary moment to me, the songs were great, but there are a couple of moments. Um, there's one where he recited the whole of A Thousand Kisses Deep. Um, and then he recites the beginning of If It Be Your Will, which, um, again, is a kind of all-purpose religious prayer. You could give that to anyone of any religion, and it makes sense. But when he was reciting that prayer, I assume, I mean, having been to some Jewish ceremonies, it, it, it's deep in him that, I think, that inca- uh, incantatory uh, rhythm and voice. And in these huge stadiums, just complete silence, no one coughing while a man recited poetry. If it be your will that a voice be true, From this broken hill, I will sing to you. From this broken hill, all your praises they shall ring. If it be your will to let me sing. There was something sacred about it. I mean, he'd been away from the stage for 15 years, had terrible stage fright, and lost all his money. Um, And so it was clearly very difficult for him to come back. He actually handed over to his to his backing singers, the Webb sisters. But when you know what he went through, but as I say, it's adaptable to almost anyone in any kind of pain. Um, if it be your will, let me sing again. It was one of the most moving things I've ever seen in performance. I will speak no more. I shall abide until I am spoken for. Particularly for this season, Who by Fire, mm. uh, one of his most mm. famous songs. Is that one of, one of the ones you, you, you played? Yeah, we've heard that. That's inspired by the Unite Tokef prayer, incanted every uh, Yom Kippur, and it plaintively asks who shall live and who shall die. And, and I suppose Hallelujah as well, uh, the song that introduced Cohen to a whole new generation when it was when Rufus Wainwright covered it. Of course, those opening lines reverberate with the Psalms, don't they? I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. Those kind of drip with Jewish references. Yeah, I think also... Cohen's just really clever. I mean, he knows what a really powerful lyric is and he's not afraid to use it. To quote another uh, great lyricist, uh, Paul Simon, um, a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. Um, that is what they do. So people claim they say, oh, he's a Buddhist, oh, he's Jewish or whatever. I don't claim he's Catholic, but there is some of that there. The sound of the shofar or Leonard Cohen, you choose which <laughs> this new year. When they said, repent, repent, They said, repent, I wonder what they meant. It seems even the great Leonard Cohen is at a loss to fully understand the concept at the heart of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that will soon be upon us, a day when Jews are meant to do nothing but pray and fast. Repentance, apology, penitence, there are plenty of words for it, but what is it really all about? Traditionally, this is when, on an empty stomach, which is a real sacrifice for Jews with our focus on food, I can tell you, uh, we reflect on the year that's just passed and, specifically, whether we've caused any hurt or unhappiness to others along the way. It's the time to say sorry, to right our wrongs. There are even Jewish websites in the US aimed at allowing guilty Jews to say sorry to each other online. JDub Records, a Jewish culture website, are running their Apologenerator, an online apology which they say is the perfect way to get you out of the doghouse and into the new year. So how relevant are these notions of atonement for modern Jews? Sounds Jewish took a sample of street opinion, asking, as Yom Kippur looms, what do you regret? 
Uh, I suppose one thing I'd like to say sorry for is um, gossiping, really, to be honest. Not that it's actual um, horrible gossip, but you're not really supposed to speak to, uh, about anybody, even if it's in a positive light, because that may lead to someone else commenting about the person in a negative light. So really, that's what I'd like to sort of work on. And I say I'll do that every year. And I do for the first couple of months. I'm really good. And then I go downhill. Yeah, I feel terribly guilty lots of the time about how I am to my children, how I am to my partner. They're the main ones. The truth is that I go around all year round saying sorry to many people and in many situations. Comes Yom Kippur, I've never said sorry to anyone because I've said all my sorries during the year. I have a funny relationship with Yom Kippur because I don't like the idea that you're made to feel bad and guilty. I think half the problem about being Jewish is about being made to feel guilty and that... Uh, and that's what Yom Kippur seems to be about. And in that sense, I kind of reject it. The one thing that I do feel sorry for most is spreading malicious rumours, you know, spreading malicious uh, things I heard about other people. Leshonara, it's called in Hebrew. It's a good thing that you have a day in the year where you can reflect about your bad deeds. Mark, uh, you're a committed Catholic, so does confession do any good? Because this is our big day of confession. You have to do it more, much more often than us. We get, we get one day and we're all done. Yeah, I, I'm a very bad Catholic, but there is um, there is that strong tradition in Catholicism, and uh, it, it comes out very strongly in various movies. Um, in Bruges, Martin McDonough, the most recent, which has a great confessional scene, and I remember as a uh, growing up, it, it's such a thrilling idea because you are. Yeah, we were told at school, and it, it, there have been cases in which specifically this was true that if the local gangster turned up and said, "What has he confessed to?" the priest had to die rather than hand over this information, and that is actually true. I mean, it's 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 an astonishing thing that the seal of the confessional is so strong. Um, and I also remember, and Richard Dawkins would say it's simply a trick of the mind, and um, it very possibly is. But I remember. Um, you would come out of confession and you would feel, I mean, that word shriven is used, but mm. you would feel cleansed and kind of pure, um, a trick of the mind or who knows what. But um, it did work in that way. Uh, Sophie, do you take Yom Kippur's healing properties seriously? I mean, I, I, I don't know if you, but I, I, some years I do spend all day uh, in the synagogue. And actually, when you get to the end of it, much as when one sort of reaches the end of a marathon or a telethon, one does sort of feel uh, actually ritually cleansed during the incantation, the repetition, which you mentioned earlier in Enna Cohen. Uh, the synagogue service does sort of bring about some kind of levity by the end of it. Yeah, it's not something I do every year, but I have to say it is... I think that what we, as human beings... We, if we carry stuff around inside us, it just builds up and builds up and the amount of resentment and negativity and negative energy inside you can just be really, really, you know, detrimental and there's nothing better than just, let, I think, letting it all out. And actually, there is a resolution and a sense of a setting and intention and I think that that is very powerful. And it, it, My big problem, my big problem is with Facebook repentance, which has become, <laughs> this is the new thing. It's like, I got, I got it last year, status updates. I would just like to say, please forgive me, anybody who I offended over the last year, thanks a lot, I'm off mm. to synagogue. It's just like, okay, I'm not really sure that that works. <laughs> no, that's true. But it's an interesting sort of the, the Ashamnu litany of sins that we've committed mm. we all sort of sing along and mm. we kind of go we've sinned we've betrayed we've ex we've ex what have we done extorted we've had committed adultery exactly. i mean, I mean they, I, i'm often thankfully not included in some of that list except there's some bits where you have gossiped and you've lied and I, you know as a gossip columnist i've got to say i've done yeah. that so i always feel like a tinge of like no i shouldn't be working i just feel like there should be things like and i've not practiced my guitar enough and i've kind of you know like where are those again you see that those online sites because they try 
I'd start online confession in America and it would have appalled the Jesuit who taught me because he would have said well these people don't have a firm purpose of amendment they're not serious about it but also in the end it was stopped which again goes back to those uh, chilling stories we, we were told as school children um, because there wasn't online security and therefore you cannot confess mm. online. But I always thought the idea of confession this is, and this is completely sort of garnered through literature and film was that one actually confessed to the actual priest who was your kind of priest of your community so it yeah. started out as a small community thing so that someone would always know what was going on. Well you see it's, it's supposed to be anonymous and um, my mother uh, was a teacher until she retired and um, so and this grill and you can't there was a curtain in those days so you couldn't see the priest so you had this absolute anonymity and then I would do and he'd give you the three Hail Marys or whatever and then he'd say oh could you ask your mother to come and see me after church on, <laughs> on Sunday and you realise that you had no anonymity whatsoever. Well God can do that to Jewish mothers he actually has a hotline to mine so it's true. Um, have you got any personal regrets this year that you'd like to make public I know this is this is kind of all on the on the internet but is there anyone you want to say sorry to Sophie? Oh golly no I mean actually my, my biggest regret I, I don't really I don't really believe too much in regret but my biggest regret is actually it is really dull but it is about I've, I've bought two guitars this year and I haven't got them out of the box yet because I've been too busy and that's my yeah I'm kind of really want to get on with it are you sorry to the guitar makers I'm sorry to, to the, the guitars music, or I'm to sorry to them cards? I said the guitars are sitting there unplayed and um yeah, that's my, my mission, is to really get on with that. Right, play more guitar in the Indeed. new year. Good luck with that. And Mark, any um, Yeah, I have one at the moment, actually. There's an editor of Literary Magazine to whom I owe a piece which is due this morning and I haven't done it and I was going to just switch off the um, it, it, because of overwork I haven't done it but I, I was going to just switch off the mobile but I think after this I will, <laughs> I will just tell him the truth it, There might be some magic Yom Kippur elves <laughs> but if you regret hard enough it just appears in his inbox that would be very uh, very 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 now uh, Sophie Solomon thank, lovely to see you good luck with the, you. Uh, the the play down at the National thank you uh, Mark Lawson thank you very much indeed for your for sharing your uh, you. what Woody Allen used to call the buy now pay later uh, <laughs> form of religion Catholicism with us on Sounds Jewish. Uh, that's all we've got time for in this month's Sounds Jewish. My thanks to my guests, to Mark and to Sophie, and to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. To play us out, here's Who by Fire, based on a key prayer in the Yom Kippur liturgy by none other than Leonard Cohen. From me and my producer, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye, Shana Tova, and well over the fast. And who by fire? Who by water? Who in the sunshine? Who in the nighttime? Who by high ordeal? Who by common trial? Who in your merry, merry month of May? Who by very slow decay? And who, who shall I say? It's called.